All right. Uh, can you guys hear me? I'm sure you can hear me. I'll big mouth it a little bit as best as I can. Coming off the illness. All right, so we're picking up where we left off. Uh, we took a break last week when Mike did a wonderful Father's Day message, and then we're going to continue. We're going to finish Romans 3 the next three Sundays, and then if you were here yesterday, you heard I will be on sabbatical uh, after that for four Sundays, so we'll take a break. I will be back August 12th, and then we'll pick up in Romans 4, and we'll plow straight through Romans except for September 30th, where we'll be doing another joint service with the Hispanic church that, that uses our building. So we'll do another service with them. I will tell them that, that 27 people clapped and said yay, and I'm <laughs> sure that they will be encouraged by that wonderfully. All right, just a quick, just a quick recap, just so you know where we're at. Uh, look at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. I want to read, so I want to begin there. Our text today is going to be Romans 3, 1 through 8. And let me just say this. If you are here and you haven't been a part of the Romans series, and let me just say this. Romans is a very technical, very complicated theological explanation. And because we don't have the luxury of reading the whole letter at one time so you can see the bigger picture, we break it down into smaller portions of what can be helpful for us and trying to explain sort of what it means and then how it applies to our life. So this is, this is very much a, a somewhat of a complicated uh, understanding it because you have to understand a lot about the Old Testament and God's relationship with Abraham and then the, the Israelites, the Jews, and, and sort of what circumcision was. And there's a lot to that, which I'm not going to explain all of that. But so I'm assuming that if you haven't been here, I want to apologize in advance if it's somewhat technical, but if you have been here, then you understand that Romans is just that kind of book, and the reason why we're going through the book of Romans is that we felt like we want more theological foundation for where we're at as a church, so that's why we're doing this. So we're going to today, there is sort of a particular style in which the author of Romans, Paul, uses to make his argument. He wants to help them understand and really defend the character of God in his theology. So Paul is preaching a gospel that's rooted in faith in Jesus Christ and who Jesus is, and there are people who are struggling with this. And you have to understand one thing about this. I think because we, we're 2,000 years away from sort of when these things were written, so we don't always understand the transition that is happening in this moment. So there's a transition where for a couple thousand years, Jewish people had a very specific way of thinking as it relates to being the people of God. And part of that was they were given the law of God. God saved them out of slavery. Many of us, even if you're not a Christian, may be familiar with uh, um, the Red Sea and, 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 and Moses leading the Israelites and some others out of Egypt and slavery in the Red Sea. And then there's this, the, the first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then you got the history of the Jewish people and the, the prophets and sort of there's this very complicated relationship between God and a particular group of people called the Israelites or the Jewish people, the Hebrews. And so, so a lot of their understanding was very fixed. Then Jesus Christ comes and he changes everything. And so there are people who are sort of caught in the transition, like it doesn't make sense to them why they no longer should think this way when they've thought this way for thousands of years. And then there are people who never thought that way, who worshiped other gods and things, and now they're being told, no, 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 no. You've worshiped all these other gods. Now you got to worship Jesus. 
He's the real God. He's the true God. So there's this, this, this dynamic transition that happens when Jesus comes, then he dies, he resurrects, and then he ascends up to heaven. And I think sometimes we can lose sight of how difficult that is if you thought one way all the time. I mean, imagine, I mean, we're going to have some, some hosts, some guests from, from China coming in. They don't speak English. They may not speak English that well. This is a different culture. They're used to living a certain way. So they're going to show up and maybe be in our homes and be blown away at stuff that's just, this is what we do. This is how we do things. We do it this way. For them, it could be foreign to them because it's just not how they're thinking. So a lot of what's happening in the letters and the Bible are trying to help people transition, either if you're Jewish, from the way you thought about yourself in relation to God, being his people exclusively with these certain requirements. So they're transitioning, and then there are people who weren't traditionally the nation that God chose to reveal himself to, and they have to transition from all the stuff that you're doing to this. It's kind of like if you grow up in the church, you kind of are exposed to a lot of things, but at some point, your faith has to become your own. Right, God has no grandchildren, he has no nieces or nephews, and he has no cousins. He has sons and daughters. So there is, you cannot live vicariously through your parents or your siblings or other people's faith. Because if you do that, then you don't have faith of your own. So at some point, if you grow up in a Christian home, like my children, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so there is a clear switch that I can remember from where I, how I was to how I am. I remember that change. My sons aren't going to have that, that. They've always grown up in this. So their transition to making their faith their own may be a little bit, it's going to come with its own complications because they've heard this, they've believed this, they've done this over and over again. They've come to this church. Like, my kids love coming to this church. They can't wait to be here. They love it. But what about when they're 17? and they've been coming since they were born, they might come to church and be like, oh, man, I don't feel like hearing my dad preach. I don't feel like going to church. So the transition to them owning and accepting Christ as their own has its own challenges. But then there are people who grow up not believing in God, and they have their own temptations and own challenges, and they have to come into this and accept Jesus as their own as well. It's the same thing in our culture today as what these people are experiencing. The Jews are transitioning to believing something, and the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are transitioning to believing in Jesus. All of us are in transition. Now, will all of us transition? I don't know. But all of us are in the process of transitioning to believe in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does, he, he's writing letters to particular churches, and this one is in the city of Rome. He's writing these letters. Sometimes he's, he's been to these churches, so he knows what's going on. Sometimes he has not been to these churches. This church he's never been to, so what he's going to do is, knowing what he's teaching theologically, having been explaining what it means to believe in Jesus and the transition of believing in Jesus exclusively, Having done that a lot, he's heard a lot of objections. He's heard a lot of objections. And so he's writing this letter, 
And when we get to chapter 3, we're going to begin at the end of chapter 2 just to get context. But he's writing this letter to help them understand the transitions. And what he's going to do, which he started to do this in chapter 2, but he'll do this more so in chapter 3. He's going to ask hypothetical questions. Not that he knows that they're asking because he hasn't been to this church yet. But he's going to ask not rhetorical. Rhetorical questions don't require an answer. They just require you to think. He's asking hypothetical questions that people may ask based on what he's teaching about the grace of God and salvation in Jesus Christ. And he'll ask a number of questions, and then he's going to answer them. And he'll do that over the course of the next few chapters so that people understand this is how you have to transition. This is the information you need if you're a Jew to transition from who you thought you were as a person of God who belonged to God to now who you are in Christ. This is a transition from those of you who didn't know God to now you know God. Here's, here's what it means. And so that's what we're doing by God's grace in 40 minutes this morning. And then I will shoot out of here and photograph a wedding and then I'll die at the end of the night from being tired. So pray for me. I'm still getting over being sick. All right, here we go. Having said that, let's look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, and we're going to read to chapter 3, verse 8, and then our primary text today will be verses 1 through 8. Here we go. I'm used to having this thing on my thing. All right. Beginning in verse 25 of chapter 2. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his circumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. I'm not going to explain that if you're unfamiliar with circumcision. There's a message you can go on our website that two weeks ago that will cover this topic. Here's our text today. So the person's praise is not from people, but from God. Verse chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what benefit is, his, uh, is, the, what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I am using a human argument. Is, God's un is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come, their condemnation is deserved. 
I've said this phrase the last year and a half, and I think this passage gets at this phrase in in a much more theological way. I've summed up this phrase without thinking about, I wasn't connecting it to Romans 3, but I've used this phrase before, grace is not that amazing. You've heard me use this phrase before if you've been a member here. Grace is not that amazing. And by that, I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing how amazing grace is. I'm clarifying how amazing it is by stating what it does not allow for. And in this particular, these questions, I believe Paul is trying to communicate that. That grace is not that amazing. Like, don't misunderstand what I'm saying about the grace of God. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not so that grace does not say, hey, because I'm merciful and I forgive, sin and sin a lot more and be okay with that. That is not biblical grace. That's what some theologians call cheap grace. I don't think it's grace at all. Now, God does forgive our weaknesses. He does forgive even our willful rebellion. But the Bible doesn't promote that. There's a difference. There's a difference. And he proves that and he makes a strong statement in this particular passage this morning so that people don't think that way because this is not an uncommon argument. This is not an uncommon argument. I've heard this argument, the non-Romans 3 version, sort of the secular, dumbed-down version of this argument plenty of times. So grace is not that amazing. It's not minimizing how amazing grace is, but clarifying how amazing that it is. Jesus did not die on the cross so people could be like, great, I'm free to just keep sinning and not care because it's God's job to forgive. That is a dangerous view of Christianity. And it's not one that I think you should be comfortable having up until your deathbed. That's for certain. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break this down into four questions. Four questions. There's really like six or seven questions that he asked, but they kind of overlap and are saying the same thing. So we're going to look at four questions and then four answers, beginning with the first question. This is a question of advantage. And he says this in verses one and two. Verse one. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what benefit, what is the benefit of circumcision? Okay, what advantage does being a Jew have then? And what's the benefit of circumcision? So let's make sure we understand the question. So it's a hypothetical question, and he gives a factual answer. Now, this is a very logical question to ask, because if you're a Jew and you think, well, we're God's people, we're God's people, we know the law, we're circumcised, that's the covenant, that's the contractual arrangement that God made with our forefather Abraham, and that Moses explained to us that we need to do in order to be God's people, that if, none of, if you're just telling me at the end of chapter 2 that none of that stuff really matters, that someone who's not Jewish can actually be accepted by God more than us who are Jewish, then what's the point of being Jewish? What's the point? What's the benefit of circumcision if someone who's not uncircumcised can be accepted by God even though I am circumcised. What's the point? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. There's logical questions to ask. He just told you Jews violate the law in Romans chapter 2. He just said in chapter 2 that God is blasphemed. 
People mock God because of the way that the Jews live. And he's saying a true Jew to God is one with a circumcised heart. Not an outward physical circumcision. So logically then, what's the point then? What's the benefit of being Jewish then? It's the same thing as I said earlier. It's advantageous to grow up in a Christian home, to read the Bible, to go to a Christian school or to a church, to go to Christian camps. It's advantageous to do that. But it doesn't save you, though. It doesn't save you. So what is the point of being Jewish then? What's the point? That's the first question that he's dealing with. And it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. I hope it's a question that my children don't ask when they grow up in the church. What's the point of this? Like, I don't, who cares about this? Like, I've done this my whole life. Like, I thought, what's the point of, I've gone to church my whole life. It's like, well, it's more to it than that. It's more to it than that. To understand this, let me try to explain the difference between the law in the Old Testament and how they obeyed that and how we obey the law in, in Christ. Let me try to explain sort of a difference. In the Old Testament, they were given, like let's just say for those of you who may, so think of the Ten Commandments as sort of the law of God. Now, there were more things that were connected to those Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments essentially sum up God's law for his people. Okay? So they were given this law. This is what sin is. Don't do it. That's what Jewish people got. Here's what sin is. Don't do these things. Before God had given them this law, they didn't necessarily know in detail what was sinful and what wasn't. Sure, there was a conscience issue, and they knew some things like this is wrong. And, but now it's clearly stated by God, this is wrong and this is right. And now you have this information as given to you directly by God himself. But here's what happened. It didn't change how they felt. It just gave them the information to know what to do and what not to do. So if you're an Old Testament Jew, you have to memorize this law. You memorize it. I think by your bar mitzvah when you're 13, you have to have the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books memorized. So you understand the law. You know that it says do not steal. You know that it says do not lie. You know that it says honor your mother and father. You know that it says do not take the Lord's name in vain. You know that it says love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know that it says do not bear false witness. You know these things, but it doesn't change how you feel. So you have to remember all these details so that you don't do them. But it doesn't really change anything to you. You just have the information. Because that's how it was in the Old Testament. So now if you take that information and you apply it and you live it, then it's like, oh, wow, okay, this is here. I believe this thing. I'm living for this. I believe this. And there were some Jews that did that. As we'll get to this in a minute, you know, David was one who God said did that. 
So you have this information, but that's all it is. In the New Testament, God says, here's what I'm going to do differently. I'm going to place my spirit in people and put my law on their heart. I'm going to do that so that people have this instinct desire to want to obey me and glorify me. So before you just got, okay, hear the rules, memorize them. But then when you become a Christian, you get a deeper conscience. Now all of a sudden, it's not about memorizing the rules. It's this sense of, I want to honor the Lord. And I don't even know everything, but I just know that this is wrong. When I became a Christian, there were things that just became wrong to me overnight. Stuff that I celebrated the day before. I had no knowledge of the Bible. I didn't know a, a, a hundredth of what I know right now. But there was something different after believing in Jesus that all of a sudden I felt like I understood that these things were wrong. And I don't really know how all of it works. I just know I can't do this anymore. There was something that God did in my heart that made me think differently about the stuff I had fun doing a couple of days before. God puts his law on your heart, and now there's this desire to obey God, even if I read the Bible for the next week or so or not. It's not just information. Now it's desire. And the desire to not do something. You see, in the Old Testament, they didn't desire to not sin. They just had the knowledge of what sin was. In the New Testament, in Christ, you get the desire to not do these things. But some people had that in their heart in the Old Testament. It's a very, very, because this isn't our culture. We didn't grow up as an Old Testament Jew to just know all these laws that you have to remember and keep in front of you. Oh, my gosh, there's a dead body. How close am I to it? Am I unclean? Oh, man, okay, I think I'm not, I think I'm unclean. I think I'm not, okay, how many feet is that? Oh, man, okay, what do I have to do? I have to go seven days. I have to stay out of the camp. You're thinking of all this stuff, all these laws. Oh, man, oh, that's right. That's wrong for me to do that. Okay, that's right. Do not commit. But then in Christ, it's like you, you have this, this, this laws written on your heart where your desire is to glorify God, and that's what makes Christian obedience different than all other obedience. What you do or don't do is because you want to honor the Lord. There's a huge difference. So then if the Jews get the law, but then that really doesn't really save them, and neither does circumcision, then what's the proof? What's the benefit? The greatest explanation of this is said by Jesus. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. This is a Samaritan woman. This is an amazing conversation. I'm glad it was recorded in Scripture. If I had more time, I'd really want to go through this particular conversation, but I do not. So I want to zoom in to just the last couple of verses of this conversation and what Jesus says here. So they're going back and forth and talking about sort of 
who they're waiting for. She's talking about they're waiting for that Jacob is their father and, and built them this well, and they're waiting to worship on the mountain. They're waiting for the Messiah and so forth and so forth. But before that, Jesus wants to prove he's trying to help her understand who he is without overtly telling her. So he, he says, go, go, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. And she says, I don't have a husband. He said, you have correctly said I don't have a husband. Jesus said, for you have had five husbands. And the man you, you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So she said, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that, that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Then he says this in verse 22 of John chapter 4. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, there's so much you could say about this. I can't wait till we get to the gospel. I mean, Jesus doesn't reveal himself this dramatically, this, this, obviously, to many people in the New Testament. But he chooses this woman. But his point is this. God chose the Israelites to be the nation that would present the uniqueness in the way that he said live. No other nation in the world can claim this reality. None. And this is crazy. God said, when I become and manifest myself as a human being, when God the Son decides to become a human being, this is the nation that he's going to come out of. That's a serious responsibility. No other nation can say this about God. Accurately, at least. You know, today, people debate back and forth what color Jesus was. There's a lot of people who say, well, he didn't look like that. And by that, I'm not looking at a picture. I'm just saying the long brown hair, blue eyes, nice kept beard. No, that's not what Jesus looked like. People debate back and forth what color Jesus was. But they cannot deny what his nationality is. He's Jewish. And salvation comes from the Jews. So what's the point of being Jewish then? What's the benefit? What's the benefit of circumcision? You all had the initial relationship with God. He chose you more than all the other nationalities in the world to be his people. And you got the law strictly from him. Remember, Moses goes to Mount Sinai and is there for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses is walking down with two stone tablets, carrying the law that God wrote with his own finger. He's saying, that's beneficial. You all have a head start on knowing who God is and how to glorify him. And when Jesus comes, 
to save the entire world. He comes from you. There's benefit to that. There's benefit to that. So what is the benefit? So you all have a relationship with God. And that salvation, as Jesus tells this woman, is from the Jews. That's, that's, that's a significant reality for them. Second question. Second question in verses 3 and 4. This contains the faithfulness. So after hearing that, Paul assumes, hypothetically, that people may ask this question. Verse 3, what then? If some were unfaithful, meaning the Jews, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Okay, let's understand the question. Is God's character directly tied to his children's behavior? Is the character of God directly tied to the way the people that believe in him act? Is that the case? Can I blame God for the actions of his people? You know, Gandhi is famously quoted as saying, I love your Jesus, but not you Christians. So I love the Jesus that you worship. I like him, but I don't like you people. And that's famously attributed to Gandhi, but I would say that that is a fundamental sentiment today. That's a fundamental sentiment today. I'm fine with Jesus. Like, I love Jesus. Like, he was a cool dude. It's Christians I don't like. It's you all. Now, biblically speaking, God is inextricably linked to his people. So you can't say, I mean, the script, God said this through John. If anyone does not love his brother whom he has seen, then you don't love God whom you haven't seen. So it's not possible. So whenever someone says, well, I love God, but not his people, then I just say, well, I don't know what gods you love. Because the God that loves his people commands you love those people too. And if you go to a church, if you can find the church is perfect, it becomes imperfect the moment you join it. <laughs> just in case you thought, just in case you didn't know. So all the, all, the, all the stuff that you don't like about your church, cool. You contribute to that. It's stuff that people in the church don't like about you. And that's 100. 100%. Here's the reason why this is important, because this is a logic often used as a way to reject Jesus. This is a, a modern-day rejection of Jesus Christ, this kind of language. Christians are hypocrites. They're hypocrites, so I can't believe in, I can't go to church. They're hypocrites. Look at what these do. Look at this pastor. Look at this scandal. Look at this. Look at that. It's a modern-day logical rejection of Jesus. So the question then is, if some were unfaithful, the people of God, will their faithfulness cancel out, will their unfaithfulness cancel out God's? understandable question. If you just said 
that the Jews have blasphemed, that, that the, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, m- mock God because of your character, then does that minimize God's character? And here's what he says in verse 4. Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. He says, absolutely not, paraphrasing. God's faithfulness will never be measured by our obedience. Never. There is a, 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 a disconnect. And even in a secular society, right, even in the culture of our day, you can't really blame, even though people may, may try to blame the parents for their child's actions, there's a reason why a grown man who commits mass murder They're not going to lock his parents up for that because he did that. Even as a child, it's a rare occasion that a child commits a murder. That child may be tried as an adult, but you rarely hear of parents being arrested because of what their children did. You cannot ultimately blame the actions of the child on the parent. At some point, this person is responsible for the knowledge that they have. Now, as a parent, we can feel responsible when our children do things that are totally contrary to what we've taught them to do, and that's a burden that you carry, but fundamentally speaking, when they stand before God, they are not going to give an account for anything but what they did. And in the court of law, God forbid my kids share any of my testimony. And if they did, I would be right there like my dad wasn't. I would be right with them, and I'd be heartbroken. But at some point, I cannot be blamed. I may regret things. I may wish I had done some things differently. And that may be some of you today. You may wish you had said this. Maybe you wished you had hugged your kids more. You know, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in a home where love was expressed at all. It was always understood. I didn't grow up like that. I don't, I don't ever remember really hugging my family and kissing them at all and saying I love you. We put it in a card, love whoever, but it was never expressed. And I've said this before. I was 25 years old. The first time I looked my mom in the face and said, I love you. It was the first time it didn't feel awkward to communicate that because I just didn't grow up in a family that did that. And I remember the day I thought, man, if I ever have a family, I'm not going to do that. So the other day, my mom called me and said, hey, what are you doing for Father's Day? And I said, well, we're a little bit sick over here. But I said, to be honest, mom, I said, at this stage, I'm not really looking for Father's Day to anything because like I kind of get Father's Day every day from my kids like we hug each other we kiss each other multiple times in the day so I, they already affirm me and I'm so I'm not looking for this day maybe when they get older and, and that if that when that relationship kind of changes then it'll mean more to me when they communicate their appreciation for me but right now they do that so often that's the culture we've built in our home that I don't necessarily I'm not looking for Father's Day to do that so they said happy Father's Day and all that. And I was like, cool, but man, they hug and kiss me every day. And I'm not saying this to boast. I'm just saying 
there's a difference in what you do and what you're trying to do. But there may be a day when that relationship changes and they may do something and I have to deal with the pain of what they've done. But the responsibility is theirs. It's theirs. It's theirs. If my children reject the Lord, it will break my heart. But the responsibility is theirs. And when I stand before God, the one thing I don't want him to say is you didn't say anything to them. No. My children will not stand before the Lord and say we didn't know. You cannot blame the parents for the actions of the children. Neither can you blame God for the unfaithfulness of those who profess to believe in him. Here's another reason why this is important. Because churches crumble and fall when leaders fall. People walk away from the faith. If you walk away from the faith because someone you respected walks away from the faith, then you didn't have faith. I mean, as much as I respect guys, if John Piper and all these people that I respect and have, they walk away from the faith, then I feel bad for them. But my faith isn't changing by God's grace. And I'm not going to judge God as being unfaithful because people who have professed to believe and have demonstrated a measure of faithfulness are now being unfaithful. Just yesterday, a very, or used to be very popular former Christian rapper just said he's gay. On social media, put it out there. I'm, I'm rejecting all this stuff. He doesn't even care. And dudes are like, hey, man, are you saying this? I just want to clarify this. I just found this out this morning. This dude was known by a lot of people, supported by a lot of people. He was like, yep. I'm not tripping. I don't care about any of this stuff anymore. And people are like, wow. I'm not going to blame the Lord for that. So if some are unfaithful, Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's? Absolutely not. Now, in the text, one of the most important verses that I think happens is in this, in verse 4. I love that Paul is very brief in these. There's brevity in Paul's description. More brevity than I'm giving. Paul's not wasting a lot of time with these hypothetical questions. And it's not because he's being rude. He's just being like, look, truth is truth. Truth doesn't need a lot of long explanation. This needs to be stated. So he says, absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. This is a very important statement for this reason, for many, but for this reason, easily. Because this is taken from Psalm 51.4. This is when David sinned against Bathsheba, or sinned with her, and the prophet Nathan comes to David and exposes him sinfulness. And David writes this psalm as an expression of repentance and contrition, humility before God. And Psalm 51.4 is David's confessing himself. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's not true. But he understands the most fundamental thing I've done wrong is I've sinned against you. And then he writes in Psalm 51.4. That you, that you, he doesn't, he doesn't blame it on God. He says, you are right and you're justified. You're justified in your words and your triumph when you judge. Like, my sinfulness doesn't take away 
your faithfulness, and you're justified when you judge. Why? Because you're not sinful like me. Now, here's why this is important. Because David, from God's own mouth, is a man after God's own heart. When the prophet Samuel was told that he's going to anoint a new king after Saul fails, and when, when, when God reveals that it's David, he describes David as a man after his own heart, way before David sinned against God in such a grievous way. So God is saying, listen, people after my own heart are not sinless. He declared this about David. You would think, oh, man, David ain't going to do nothing wrong. And if you read the passage, it looks pretty clear. He looked down, saw Bathsheba, and said, man, send her up. Then it looked like he wrestled with that decision at all. I mean, that's 100%. This is a man after God's own heart and can sin this grievously. And so when, when they use this quote, to, when Paul uses what David said to make his argument, he's saying something significant that even someone like David, a man after God's own heart, even when he sins, it doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. It doesn't. I believe this quote is very intentional by God because David was seen as the dude to the Jews. This is even when your man has sinned against me in such grievous ways. Even he acknowledges that I am still faithful to judge. I'm still faithful. And you know what his faithfulness looked like? Forgiveness of David. And David still was one of the patriarchs for the Jewish people. Unfaithfulness by us at times doesn't remove God's faithfulness anytime. 1 Timothy 2 says that when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. If everyone stopped believing in God today, it would not change the fact that he's God today. Not one bit. When people say stuff or fall away from the Lord and they're like, man, what do you think, man? It's just like, I, Jesus is still on the throne. Like, that's not changing. That's not changing because some people say, I ain't, I'm not believing him. I'm not reading my Bible. I'm offended at God. I'm not reading or praying. Okay, it'll change how you are, but it won't change how he is. It just doesn't work that way. You see, David isn't the man that represents God fully. Jesus is. Jesus is the man that represents God fully. That's why he's saying this. Even when David sins, it doesn't change God's faithfulness. He appointed David to be king. Everyone who's Jewish knows the story that David is a man after God's own heart, that God gave David multiple victories and did all this stuff for him. So was somehow now something wrong with God because he did that for David? No. It highlights the mercy of God that he sets the standard that even David doesn't keep it. 
God's still able to be merciful to him and loving to him. So then that begs the next question. Paul hypothetically is going down the road like, okay, when people catch that, then they're going to ask this, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's unrighteousness, what are we to say? In other words, they're hearing, okay, I'm with you. So if my sinfulness highlights God's righteousness, then what's the problem? He says, I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? So if my sinfulness shows how amazing God is, isn't that a good thing? Why should I be punished? Why should I be punished? This is a good thing. Why should I be punished? Like, isn't grace amazing? Well, to answer that, here's a question we have to answer. How does our unrighteousness highlight God's righteousness? How does it do that? How does our unrighteousness highlight God's righteousness? I would love to take a lot of time on this, but let me just say this. When we sin, when we do wrong, we do a couple things. One, we show that only God is right. And this is because God set the standard of righteousness. He set the standard, which means he can keep it. When we sin, we show that we can't keep it. So one, we prove that God is worthy because he can keep his own standard. He can keep his own standard. We can't. And we have to understand this. I don't know if you think on this level, but the standard of living that God gave us is very much beneath him. I hope you understand that. It's very much beneath God. Like we are finite, sinful human beings whom God has said, here's how you need to live. That's very much below who God is. Like his holiness and his righteousness is so much so that it says that he can't even, sin can't even stand before him. Even, even righteous men like the apostle John, who in Revelation stand before God, they drop. And the spirit has to stand them up. God has to stand people up just so they can look at him. And Isaiah, when he sees God, he's like, whoa, it's me. I mean, Peter sees God, Jesus, God is a human being. All he did was catch a few fish. And he realizes, I'm a sinful man. Stay away from me. Like, sin can't even be in the presence of God, and yet we are so comfortable with it, we do it consistently. So his standard, our, the standard he sets for us is very much beneath him. It really is. I mean, Jesus lived 33 years, didn't sin one time, and he just makes it look effortless. I mean, I would. I don't. I'm, I, I. I don't know. I would love to see, know what his siblings thought. That would be an amazing. That's. A, there's certain questions you. I don't know what questions. One day we need to talk about what questions are you going to ask when you get to heaven. Don't. Talk, I don't ask who killed Kennedy. I want to know stuff like, how in the world? What were Jesus's brothers and sisters thinking as they watched this guy? This guy grow up. Like he doesn't do anything wrong. Like you can't. Like can you imagine trying to blame it on Jesus? Like my sons fight all the time. I'll hear him fight. I'll be like, hey boys, come here, and they'll come in. And they'll be all petrified like they're going to, and I'm like, what happened? Well, he did this. He said, no, he did this. And I'm sitting there, and I just, I know my kids, so I'm looking at them. And I'll just ask, I'm like, all right. And I can put together what happened based upon knowing my kids. Can you imagine trying to blame Jesus? Well, what happened? Well, Jesus married, like, no, he didn't. 
No, he didn't. Didn't. Well, Jesus, no, he didn't. You were getting a spanking right away. Soon as you blame Jesus, you're guilty. That's it. If you blame Jesus, turn over. So this is going to hurt me more than it does you. No, it's not. Turn over. You can't blame Jesus for anything. I mean, this dude did nothing. It was incredible. I just, I can't wait to ask how that plays out. I just, his brothers were like, man, you're talking about a tough act to follow. So if we, by our unfaithfulness, show how faithful he is, why should we be punished? This is actually a popular argument. There was a book a couple of years ago by an author called Love Wins Out by a former pastor who basically said, hey, God's love is such, so significant that there's no one's going to go to hell. That everyone will die and there'll be a chance for them to experience God's love. And, and the very popular book was on Oprah and all that stuff. So if you want to get on Oprah, write some bad theology. You will be, <laughs> you will be front and center. You know, if you wanted to get in her book club, I might write some bad theology, get in her book club, and then restore it, and then see what happens. It's dangerous. This is a dangerous perspective. This is why he says, I'm using a human argument. It's a statement that says, this, this is only something a finite creature would think. This doesn't even make sense. This doesn't make sense. That why is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? You see, what this logic misses is that God doesn't just set the standard for how to live. By default, he is responsible to judge the standard of how to live. By default. If you set the standard, then you're responsible to evaluate was it kept or not. And, that's an, and you, you know what? All of us do that on some level, depending on your position. If you are a manager at your job, you evaluate whether or not your employees are doing a good job. And your perspective gives them a review that may give them more money or less or not even have a job. That's what happens. You are responsible when you are in a position of authority to evaluate the situation. You evaluate. There's a reason why when you go in a court of law, the bailiff does not have the most authority in the room. The judge does. The bailiff submits to the judge because the judge has the highest moral authority in the room because he has the most knowledge. He has the position. The judge does. We accept that on every level. So in the eternal realm, it's the same thing but even exemplified more because God has the moral authority, the knowledge, the character. He laid the foundation for how you ought to live so he alone has to evaluate whether or not you lived according to the standard. And if you're an Old Testament Jew believing in the Ten Commandments, then you got to live it perfectly. Or you believe in Jesus and you fight to live even though you struggle, but your faith is in Jesus. That's the new standard. That's the new standard. You know, when I used to watch it, when American Idol first came out, I really liked it the first couple years when it was Paula, Randy, and Simon. The, how many of you remember the show when it was just them? Remember during the show, though, remember. You, you didn't know this. I didn't know why until later. But for a while, there was a point in the show where everyone wanted Simon's perspective, right? Remember that. You would watch the show, and Paula would always be like, oh, you were fascinating. You were amazing. And you knew Paula's a harmonizer. She's just going to say anything. 
and agree. Randy was a little bit more uh, of a, a persister. He was, I don't know, dog. It might have been, might have been good, might not have been good, might have been good, might not have been good, I don't know. But everyone wanted to know what Simon thought. He had the most important say. Even if the other two didn't like it, if you impressed Simon, it was like victory. You know why? Because that was Simon's show. It was his show. All the contestants knew this is his show. Paula and Randy are his employees. So ultimately, what he says matters. Well, this is God's show. And we are his employees. And ultimately, what he says matters. What he says matters. He sets the standard and he has the authority to evaluate if we've kept it. Last question, verse 7. This is about judgment. But if, by, but if I live by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? It's kind of restated this again. Essentially, if I'm sinning and it's glorifying God, it's showing how merciful God is, then why am I being judged for that? Like, I'm actually glorifying God. I'm making people see how amazing God is by my sinfulness. And Paul uses these, the last four words of the verse, verse 8. He says, their condemnation is deserved. Here's why. Because when you have that kind of logic, it's obvious that you don't have God's glory at all in mind. You don't care about glorifying God at all you're just trying to figure out how much can you sin and not be punished for it. It doesn't matter about that Jesus has died in your place. It doesn't matter about God's glory. It matters about how much can you do and not experience any consequences for it. And people were saying that's what Paul was teaching because they couldn't understand the transition to believing in Jesus. Because if you were a Jew, you had to keep all these strict laws. And now in Jesus, there's a new freedom. And they were like, there's no way. This dude is just saying, go ahead and sin. And it was like, no, you misunderstand what's happening. The condemnation is deserved because you're saying, ah, I'm not worried about God's glory. What's the point of this? You're missing the point. Or more so, you don't care about the point. What you care about is how much can I hold on to without being punished. And that's why he says they deserve condemnation. Because grace is not that amazing. It's not that amazing that we can just do whatever and expect there to be no consequences from God. It's not that amazing. It's not that amazing that you can grow up in the church and think I just got time to do whatever and God's just going to be like, okay, cool. It's not that amazing. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Sure. It's not that amazing. It's not that amazing that you love the person that you're with so you're sitting sexually with them and God's just okay with that because you actually love them. It's not that amazing. Because if you stand before God in that state, then God's going to say, you knew and you disobeyed me because you love that person more. Your condemnation is deserved. It's not that amazing. It's not that amazing. We are obligated by our faithfulness, by his faithfulness, 
the faith that he's given us. To obey him. And yes, we will fail to meet the standard. He will forgive us. And know this, more than any of us, God knows the difference. He knows the difference between someone who's genuinely sorrowful over their sin and who's struggling but still fighting, even if they still give in at times. He knows the difference between a person who's doing that and a person who's just not tripping, who really is like, all right, well, great. You know, he knows the difference. And even if I'm fooled or we're fooled, he's, he won't be. He won't be. He won't be. Because I may be fooled. We may be fooled. But if we stand before God with that perspective, then we'll be fooled. Because he's not going to do that. Condemnation is deserved. If the logic of the questions that he's asking becomes sort of how we live out the Christian life. Now, obviously, there's more to the argument, but essentially, take away this. Take away this as you walk away. What advantages do we have in being a Christian? We still suffer. We still struggle. Circumstances don't necessarily go our way. Things happen to us that we can't explain, things that we don't like. We give up a lot of things that are fun to do in the worldly sense. What advantage does that have to being a Christian? What's the advantage for us? One word. Eternity. Eternity. Heaven. Eternity. Christianity does not promise an easy, simple life. But it promises a rewarding and immensely joyous eternity if we persevere. Father, I just pray that you would allow us to, to be people who who understand and are growing in our understanding. We don't understand fully. There's a lot that you I maybe should have said that, or things I shouldn't have said. There's, there's much here, Lord. I obviously don't know everything and but we are people that you've given a measure of faith to many of us. And if nothing else, you've allowed all of us to at least hear, even if it was only for today, you've allowed all of us to at least hear some truth coming from your word. And it was particularly written for the Jews in the early church and the Gentiles, but it's also for us in the church two millennia later. Lord, we just, I just pray simply that you would have us not take advantage of grace. May we be people that, yeah, we're going to struggle. We're going to be faithless at times. That's just the reality. If we could, if we could be faithful, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. It, would, it wouldn't be necessary if it were possible. It wasn't possible for us to be faithful to the level in which you, the standard in which you set, 
And so you allow Jesus to come and meet that standard, but take our punishment as if he didn't meet it. And then tell us to believe in him and forgive. And forgiveness is ours when we don't meet it. I just pray that we would not take advantage of that grace. We all have habits and patterns that we have to go after. But I pray, Lord, that you would, as you've given us your spirit and the law is on our heart, may our hearts not be so hardened or so used to the ways that we are or the sinfulness that we have that we're not even affected by things that we do. Lord, I pray for any in here whose hearts are so hardened that they're not even affected anymore by the sins that they give into. I pray that you would break the hardness of their heart. And that's any of us. Break the hardness of our heart, Lord, wherever that be. May we not take for granted the mercy that you've given us and at least fight very hard not to. You've been a merciful and loving God from day one. And there are things that you do that we don't like. We acknowledge that. There are circumstances that do not make sense to us. And they probably will never make sense to us in this life. But the benefit of the faith that we have in you is eternity. You made it plain throughout your word. But as we went through the book of Revelations last year, you made it very plain that that those who persevere to the end will be significantly rewarded. And you just meant those of us who continue to believe in you despite some of the challenges that we have and despite circumstances that really tell us that you're not worth being You're not worthy to be believed in or that we can believe in you but do whatever because you're so loving that you just forgive any and everything without any cause. There's so many different ways that we are deceived by the enemy. I pray that you would would help us help us to remember eternity that we're not just rejecting things just for the purpose of it. We're rejecting them for your glory and to be with you in eternity. And that doesn't mean that much to a culture where you have a lot of things that you want, where we're more impressed with technological advancement than eternal advancement. But I pray that you would help us to be focused and to fight and to remember. Remember what we said when, when Barbara went to be with you. Remember when we said to the end. May those three words characterize us to the end for your glory and our good. In your name we pray.